Our Old Testament reading today comes from Proverbs, chapter 29, verse 13. Listen for the word of God. The poor and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. Our first New Testament reading today comes from Romans, chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Listen for the word of God. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our second New Testament reading today comes from Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Listen for the word of God. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Once again, I want to introduce our guest, David Morse, and thank him for being here and speaking with us today. Good morning. So, Todd, thank you for that introduction. Uh, in case anybody was wondering why the, the white Jewish guy is in church today talking about race, I think you learned I, I, I kind of do race for, for a living. And uh, so I do market research focused on multicultural consumers. And, you know, we do a lot of focus groups and things like that. And, you know, it might be for a client selling a car or a toothpaste, but always the theme is about race. And I, I'll be sitting in the back room, they can't see me, of a focus group. And a lot of times, you know, the moderator will be asking questions about race. You know, what does it mean to you to be African American? And, you know, a lot of the responses we hear are about racism, about discrimination, and Hispanics will talk about kind of the nativist uh, tone gripping the country and discrimination of, of, against the undocumented. And, and, and sometimes I'll moderate a group with white folks. And uh, usually the conversation is something to the effect of, well, you know, we're all the same. We don't, we, we don't see race. I'm, I'm, I'm colorblind. And I'll go a little bit deeper and the tone starts to change a little bit. I start to hear comments like, how come you don't have affirmative action for white people? Or I'd, I'd like to know why you have African-American dorms, a, a Hispanic dorm. I'd, I'd like to see a white person dorm. And uh, what I'd like to uh, talk about now is the two different worlds that we live in in America. Say one of them black, one of them white. Uh, a disturbing trend, I think. I'm not going to talk about the election, but uh, there's some there's some evidence in research that racism is on the rise in the United States. There was a study done by uh, some folks at Stanford, University of Chicago, and University of Michigan, and they found that the number of voters with what they call explicitly anti-black attitudes. People that said things like, 
blacks are lazy, you know, uh, if they worked a little harder, uh, they would do better in society. 48% of Americans made such statements in 2008. When they did the study again in 2012, the number went up to 51%. Conversely, there was a decrease in folks expressing pro-black attitudes from 47 to 42%. Now, interestingly, maybe not surprisingly, there was a real partisan divide. 79% of Republicans made explicitly anti-black statements compared to 32% of Democrats. But here's what I want you to listen to. The study also looked at what's called implicit bias. And it's a study that measures unconscious or subconscious attitudes towards race. It's very interesting. What it does is it pairs positive and negative statements with blacks and whites or whatever the group is that you're looking at. And the speed that you're able to connect a positive adjective with a race versus a, a negative attitude, a negative word, you know, lazy, evil, bad, harmful, is measured. And uh, on an implicit measure, there were no differences between Republicans and Democrats. Everybody showed the same level of implicit bias. You can, you can go and take one of these tests yourself. If you go to the, uh, the uh, oh, I can't find it in my notes, Project Implicit, which is out of Harvard, 70% of people that take that test show implicit bias towards blacks. And blacks are included in that number. Uh, of those, in addition to the 70, another 17% uh, showed neutral, no, no, no change. So one of the things I wanna talk about is this implicit bias that I think we all have. I do. Certainly anybody my age has that kind of a bias. Here's what I'm talking about. I wanna quote Obama. When he, uh, this was uh, in a speech that he made after the killings in Charleston. He said, maybe we now realize the way racial bias can affect, infect us even when we don't realize it. So that we're guarding against not just racial slurs, but we're also guarding against the subtle impulse to call Johnny back for a job interview, but not Jamal. Hillary Clinton uh, made, a, made a speech she said, our problem is not all kooks and Klansmen. It's also the cruel joke that goes unchallenged. It's the offhand, comment, the offhand comment about not wanting those people in the neighborhood. Let's be honest. For a lot of well-meaning people, open-minded white people, the sight of a young black man in a hoodie still evokes a twinge of fear. And that's what I'm talking about. Now, I want to talk a little bit about uh, my past. Life as the perspective of somebody who just turned 55. I grew up watching, and, and, and any of you who are my age or older, remember how African Americans were portrayed in the media. As something as benign as a Shirley Temple movie with a step and fetch it, if any of you remember him, was portrayed in a grossly stereotypical way. Uh, Charlie Chan movies. Uh, let me uh, read a quote from a Great book, it's called Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben and Rastus. It's the history of blacks in advertising. And she talks about the way that, uh, that blacks were depicted in advertising in the 40s and 50s. And certainly, if you grew up in the 60s, you saw this, some of this stuff on TV. The mouth was open unusually wide 
and filled with large and or carnivorous white teeth by exceptionally large, thick, ruby-red protruding lips. The eyes in these advertisements were most often seen uncontrollably with ecstatic fright. Common image, by the way, was that blacks were afraid of ghosts. There were lots of so-called funny movies made where they were getting scared out of their wits by ghosts. Adjectives such as saucer lips and banjo eyes were often used to describe blacks with negative connotation. Here's a little more background. Uh, up until the 1950s, there was a popular brand called Niggerhead, fruit and vegetables, tobacco and oysters. There was Piccaninny peanut butter. I don't know if you're familiar with the term Piccaninny. It's used to describe African-American kids, usually with very nappy hair, hair out of control, again, the bulging eyes. Blacks were often showed as cannibals with bones going through the nose. Uh, soap companies used to advertise with black people because supposedly the soap was so effective it would, it would wash the black off of your skin. That's the world we live in. Here, I'm a researcher, so I like to talk with numbers. When I was born, three years before I was born, in 1958, 96% of whites disapproved of interracial marriage. Two years after I was born, 1963, 62% of Americans felt there should be laws against interracial marriage. 60% felt right, that whites had the right to keep blacks out of the neighborhood. 35% were in favor of segregated schools and 27% in favor of segregated parks, restaurants, and hotels, 21% in favor of segregated transportation. That's the world I grew up in. I can't tell you conscience that I'm colorblind. I grew up in New Hampshire, outside of Boston. When I was 13 years old, uh, there was a federal judge, a guy named Garrity, and he ordered that the schools be desegregated that summer. Holy hell broke loose. It was racial warfare in the city of Boston. There was a Pulitzer Prize winning picture of a, of a black attorney outside of City Hall getting beaten within inches of his life with a flagpole. And if you look at the picture, it looked like he was going to get stabbed with a flagpole. There was a, a, uh, a white uh, auto mechanic who was driving through Roxbury, which is a very black section of town. And uh, there were about 100 black teenagers that pelted his car with stones, drove off the road, they dragged him out of his car, they beat him into a coma, and they chanted, let him die. A couple days later, uh, a white teenager uh, stabbed a black kid in South Boston High School and hundreds of whites barricaded the school so nobody could get it while the kids couldn't leave. Uh, as a crazy kid that I was that same summer, you know, I used to live in New Hampshire. My father worked in Boston, and I'd get a ride with him. I'd, I'd hitch a ride to Boston and, you know, get on the subway. Well, I had the idea to go to uh, Franklin Park Zoo in Dorchester, right where my father grew up. It used to be a Jewish ghetto. And... Uh, it was one of the scariest times of my life. I, I watched as all the white folks got off the bus, little by little as the bus went off the hill, and everybody was black. Got off the bus, and I got mugged. It took my money. Uh, 
I remember getting on a, another bus to go back crying, saying, they, they, they took all my money. That was the stuff that I grew up with. That kind of stuff, those images in the media influence you. You can't not be affected by them. I moved to San Francisco at one point and I realized that when I was in a black neighborhood, I felt scared. So I bought a house, I bought a little house in Hunters Point, San Francisco, because I realized I needed to get over it. There was something wrong with me. So I want to talk about the two Americas that we live in. Here's some more numbers, okay? Based on surveys, 88% of blacks, 55% of whites, big difference, right? Say the country needs to continue making changes in order for blacks to have equal rights. 43% of blacks are skeptical that this is gonna happen. Only 11% of whites. 70% of blacks and only 36% of whites feel that blacks have a harder time due to racial discrimination. In, in terms of blacks being treated less fairly, okay, in the workplace. Are blacks treated less fairly in the workplace? 42 point difference between blacks and whites. The, the blacks get treated up unfairly when applying for a loan or a mortgage, 41% difference. Dealing with the police, 34% difference. Do they get treated unfairly in stores or restaurants? 28% difference. 58, 59% of white Republicans and 21% of white Democrats feel that too much attention is paid to race. 78% uh, of white Democrats and 36% of white Republicans feel that the country needs to continue making changes. My argument here is that we live in very different worlds and it behooves us to be aware, to look within and be aware. Can I give you some more numbers? Socioeconomic realities, okay? Blacks make about half of what whites make in terms of wealth, because most wealth is inherited, right? We inherit homes from our parents when they die. Whites have 13 times the wealth that blacks have. More than half of black families with children are headed by a single mother compared to a fifth of whites. 47% of families headed by a black single mother are in poverty. There's a wonderful book by a lady named Michelle Alexander. It's called The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration of African Americans. Blacks make up one million of the 2.3 million total people incarcerated in the United States. They are incarcerated six times the rate of whites. One in six black men had been incarcerated as of 2001. African Americans represent 26% of juvenile arrests. Keep in mind, make up 12% of the population. 44%, blacks make up 44% of the youth who are detained by police. 46% of the youth who are judicially waived to criminal court from juvenile court. 58% of the youth admitted go to state prisons. African Americans serve as much time in prison on average for a drug offense, 58.7 months, as whites do for a violent offense, 61 months. The country's divided. Now, what I wanna talk about, I wanna give a name to this phenomenon that I'm 
alluding to. There's a uh, sociologist called Eduardo Bonilla Silva who wrote a book called Colorblind Racism. And he says that's what's really wrong with the country. You know, we don't, if you say racial slurs and you're famous, you're going to be all over social media in a matter of seconds. You're going to be on the national news that night. Not cool. But it is cool to say things that, uh, when I say cool, it's acceptable to say things like the kids say in my focus groups. Why don't you have any white dorms? Typical of colorblind racism, typical of white thinking in America, is that uh, blacks play the race card. That they're responsible for the situation that they're in, all those socioeconomic stats that I made. They'd get off their you-know-whats, work hard like the rest of us. That's colorblind racism. According to Silva, uh, most whites believe that if blacks and other minorities would just stop thinking about the past, right? This happened. Slavery was 150 years ago. They'd work hard and complain less, particularly about racial discrimination, than Americans of, all, of hues could all get along. That's the essence of the colorblind racism. You know, if we could just stop talking about race, it's divisive. We'd all get along. I contend that things are broken in this country. We need to be talking about race, and we need to be looking within ourselves to root out racism and its, its correlates. I was greatly moved by a, by a quote by the writer Tenehisa Coates, who write, wrote, a, wrote a marvelous book this year or last year called Between the World and Me. He's writing to his son, young African-American son, he said, I'm sorry that I cannot make it okay. I'm sorry that I cannot save you, but not that sorry. Part of me thinks that your very vulnerability brings you closer to the meaning of life. Just as for others, the quest to believe oneself white divides them from it. The fact is that despite their dreams, their lives are also not inviolable. And I would not have you live like that. You have been cast into a race in which the wind is always at your face and the hounds are always at your heels. And to varying degrees, this is true of life. The difference is that you do not have the privilege of living in ignorance of this essential fact. Life is very different for white folks and black folks and other people of color. I'm going to leave you with uh, a quote from Numbers 1418. It's actually read right here two weeks ago, I think. Uh, I'm going to tell you my thoughts on it. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will be no, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, I think, I think we're mostly Protestants and Jews in here, right? We're not big on a vengeful God. But I do believe, I guess, in the law of karma, in a universal law where you, get, you reap what you sow. We've sinned 
Not us personally, maybe, but our country has sinned. We enslaved African Americans, kept them segregated for a couple centuries, massacred Native Americans. We've treated our minorities very, very badly. And we're reaping what we sowed. We're reaping what our grandparents and our great-grandparents sowed. So I'd, I'd like to, again, leave you with the thought that because the country we live in is broke, let's pray to God for, for help. And let's look within. And if we find the seeds of racism, let's do what we can and ask for help to root them out. God bless you all.